Macworld Podcast number 317 for August 29th, 2012. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm Chris Breen. Given the news of the last several days, it should come as no surprise that in this episode, we wade into the Samsung versus Apple patent lawsuit, the result of which will likely change a great many things about the mobile computing business. But it isn't all about the exciting world of patent infringements and intellectual property. Among the geek chic, another storm is brewing. Twitter's generally aggressive stance with third-party developers. Dan Morin, Lex Friedman, and I tackle both subjects in scintillating fashion right about now. I'm joined by my colleagues Dan Morin and Lex Friedman to discuss a couple of the hot news stories of the week. Hello, Dan. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And hello, Lex. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. You bet. So the obvious big news of the week is the Samsung versus Apple patent lawsuit, which has just come to its conclusion. So for those cave dwellers out there, Dan, lay out what this whole battle was about. Well, the deal between this battle, which I think launched off uh, last year, uh, was that Apple sued Samsung for saying, look, you're making these smartphones and tablets, and they just, they just look really, really, really similar to the iPhone and the iPad, and we think you basically ripped us off. Um, so obviously there's a lot of patent litigation that, that flies around, you know, at the same time, Apple had struck a deal at some point with Nokia about some patent exchanges. They'd gone after HTC, another one of the main Android vendors, and they'd actually gone after Motorola too, which was the third of the major Android vendors. And so in, there's a number of issues at stake here. And if you look at the, 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 um, the documents in the trial and the eventual verdict, there are, I believe, literally hundreds of counts of infringement. Now, they cover a wide variety of Samsung products because, as we all know, there's a new Android phone out about every five minutes. So there's a lot of potential infringing material there. Um, a lot of the ones, my understanding is, a lot of the ones that were actually uh, most severely infringing, according to Apple's contention, have already left the market because these things cycle very quickly. Um, but the, at the root of it, it's really an issue of I hesitate to say look and feel because that's a phrase that's become very associated with a particular set of uh, litigation from between Apple and Microsoft back in the late 80s, early 90s. But there is definite uh, an element of this, what they call trade dress, which is to say the way that you're designing your things and presenting your products is infringing upon the way that we have designed and presented our products. Um, and some of the evidence that came out in the course of the trial suggested that this really was an attempt by Samsung to capitalize on uh, the success of iOS. So obviously, you know, we've heard a lot about the various implications here. Um, and Steve Jobs, even in his biography before he uh, passed away, told Walter Isaacson that he was really, you know, going after Android. Now, Android, of course, is made by Google. Apple didn't go after Google, but rather went after its hardware partners, whether that's because they felt like they had a better case or those were really the most egregious examples were actually performed by the hardware partners because, you know, with all these Android phones, all the different companies get to put their own little spin on Android because they can do their own little UI on top of that. And it really did seem like of those, Samsung was definitely the most egregious. So... Long story short, they basically said, you ripped us off and sued them. And the two companies could not come to an agreement about, uh, you know, settling this and saying, all right, fine, you know, we'll pay you a bunch of money and you'll license us some patents. They just couldn't figure out a way to come to an equitable arrangement. And so the whole thing went to trial. 
Okay, so what was Samsung's position in all this? Well, Samsung's position to a certain extent, they tried a variety of techniques, including trying to have several of Apple's patents declared invalid, which would have prevented Apple from suing them on the basis of those patents. None of those claims went through. The jury decided that every, all the Apple patents that Samsung accused of were valid. So that approach did not quite pay off. Uh, in addition to that, they also tried to argue the idea that you know a lot of the stuff that Apple is doing in their design is obvious or there really isn't any other way to do this you know um so they're saying like look you know something like uh i think one of the claims in apple had to do with rounded rectangles which is something that apple or uh, samsung has like sort of fixated on as kind of ridiculous like oh you can't patent rounded rectangles because it's a shape you know it's obvious um but apple's sort of counter contention there is well you know nobody was really doing this before we did and so we really pioneered the design in this fashion um and so it seems like, based on the claims that Samsung was trying to make, which is like, well, you know, we can't really be accused of copying things if this is like, you know, it's, wow, it's like we made our wheels round, right? Like yeah. everybody makes their wheels round. Um, but obviously, Ugg the caveman who made the first round wheel might say that, well, nobody thought about it before me, so it can't be that obvious. Yeah, I think there are a couple of points there. One is that I think Dan Frake said this, that everybody now says that the design of the iPhone was obvious. And yet right. at the time when the iPhone first came out, we looked at that thing with a single button on it and said, this is crazy. Right. How could somebody build a, an iPhone or a phone at all with with a single button? That's impossible. And yet once people used it, they went, oh yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. And if you, if you look back and there are some people have provided these sort of seemingly damning uh, graphics of here are all the iPhones that we, or here are all the smartphones we saw before the iPhone and here are all the smartphones we see after the iPhone. And of course, most of the, the smartphones that we saw before the iPhone were things like Windows Mobile and the uh, Treo, which had these little hardware keyboards, the Blackberry style thing, right? And now it seems like overwhelmingly, uh, the model is the single, the touchscreen with a single button or very few buttons on it, and shaped in this little rounded rectangle format. Um, oh, my so, favorite, my favorite memory yeah. is Steve Ballmer from Microsoft. Obviously, not a party in this lawsuit, but you know, Steve Ballmer saying in 2007 that the iPhone is not going to be a machine that's going to appeal to business customers because it doesn't have a keyboard, which makes it not a very good email machine. And of course, now all of Windows phones have no keyboard either. They all go to the touchscreen. But it's, I, I mean, I agree with you, Chris. It's, it's ludicrous now for people to say that this was obvious and this was an inevitable evolution when nobody even believed it when it first started. Yeah, although I don't think that Balmer is the, is the really the best source to go to for <laughs> deciding yeah, for what is obvious business, and what is for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I so. think the other thing about Samsung's argument about this whole round, you know, you can't patent rounded um, corners. I mean, this reminds me of, Let's say that that Joe of Joe's Cola Company decided to make a formula that they put into this bottle that looked exactly like a classic Coke bottle. You say, well, but that's just a bottle. So how can you possibly uh, patent that? Well, all you have to do is look at a Coke bottle in silhouette and know exactly what that is so that design can be iconic. And I think – this sort of rounded rectangles thing goes nowhere around the corners argument. Yeah, you can make the same argument about, you know, trademarks or, you know, copyrights on certain, you know, you've got like your Coca-Cola logo, right? That's got a very distinctive uh, uh, font and presentation. And while you can certainly get away with using that in certain cases, like parodying it, um, you couldn't just make your stick a Coca-Cola logo on your product, right? Because right. that is that is protected by law. Um, and the way that we that things are made uh, are also protected by law. Now, how this lawsuit 
Now, the fall of the lawsuit, the verdict, which they came to last week, um, was basically that Apple won the majority, uh, overwhelming majority of counts, um, and they got a billion dollars in damages from Samsung, and Samsung got zero dollars in damages from Apple. Um, that's a little under, I think that's more, not quite half, a little under half of what they uh, Apple was seeking in damages, but it's a pretty substantial win nonetheless, not because of the money part so much, because obviously a billion dollars, even for Apple, not that much money these days. Um, but it is significant in terms of there's a lot of ongoing patent litigation in this sphere right now. Um, and this is an actual decision that can probably be used as ammunition for uh, further patent lawsuits saying, well, this was designed in Apple's favor. So this establishes a precedent and we can use that as a reason to try and sue more people for our patents. And so there's a question of what happens long-term as far as how patents are affected and how the overall patent system, especially when it comes to things like software and trade dress and all this stuff is going to play out in the future. Right. So through the trial, what arguments did the jury find compelling? Well, it seemed like a lot of the ones that they found most compelling were the things where uh, Apple provided documentation of discussions that were going on within Samsung that basically, you know, didn't exactly say, um, here's exactly what we're going to do and rip off iOS, but basically suggested we need to make our stuff look more like iOS. You know, it was running down comparisons of here's Samsung's phones, here's Apple's phones. Let's just try and shift the more and more elements of our design to resemble Apple elements because clearly that's what consumers want. Um, and I think from what I've read, it sounds like that's, that was just so blatant in, in many ways that the jury found that an extremely convincing argument. Right. So we talked about the future. So um, Samsung is likely to appeal this. I think maybe they've already said they're going to appeal this. Right. If only to knock down the, the award so that it's not quite that very impressive billion point oh five dollars, which is, a, you know, again, it's I think it's what a quarter of their quarterly profits, something like That's yeah, right. something something small percentage of that, and of course, you know, to Apple, which has a hundred billion dollars in the bank, it's pocket change in some ways, but it's it's the it's the it's the principle rather than the money in this case. Right, and it's still clearly an impressive number, enough so that I think that this ripples through the mobile industry. So what happens to people now who want to design a tablet or a phone, and they know that they can't touch anything close to the iPhone design? And that's the argument, because then you have all these people saying, well, it's impossible. They've, they've clearly done it the only way it can be done, um, which is not true. I mean, if you look at something like an Android phone, uh, and I gather it's been a while since I've used one uh, primarily as a phone. Um, but I think that tends to still have a closer resemblance to iOS than something like Windows Phone, which if you've ever looked at a Windows Phone side by side with an iOS device, they're very, very different. Um, and so to a certain extent, sure, it might seem like Apple's got the only game in town right now, but you could have just argued that, you know, before the iPhone came out, Everything looked like a BlackBerry. So clearly somebody like Apple came along and said, look, we made something that doesn't look like a BlackBerry. Sooner or later, I still think somebody will come along and might even be Apple and say, here's something that doesn't look like an iPhone. I mean, I, I don't buy into the argument at all that this will, that uh, this ruling stifles innovation. Because when you look at 
who Apple sued and who who suffers here? It's the company that wasn't innovating, right? It's Samsung doing everything it can to emulate exactly the kinds of things Apple was doing with iOS. And Apple has not filed any kind of lawsuit against Microsoft because, like you said, Dan, you know, Windows Phone is looks very different. Uh, I think if anything, it you know it helps further the process of innovation. Since you're saying now, unless you're willing to pay Apple substantial fees. You can't do this. You, you've got to do your own thing and go your own way. And I, I, to me, it's not that problematic. Um, you know, when you look at uh, people have been pointing out in the, the hubbub following the verdict, the fact that Apple now pays uh, Nokia, I can't remember the exact amount of money. I think it's in the neighborhood of $10 or so for every iPhone that it sells as part of its patent licensing from Nokia. So it's not impossible to say if you do want to do something that's similar to something somebody already has done to say, we'll license it. Apple was willing to license to Samsung and Samsung just didn't want to pay. Uh, I'll tell you, Chris, what I'm most interested about, and it could be nothing. Uh, it could be no impact whatsoever, but I'm interested to see how the relationship between the two companies continues for everything else. Since Samsung is such a big hardware supplier for Apple, right. does a company that has just won a you know a billion plus dollar verdict against you, do you still want to do business with that company? I mean, I guess if Apple keeps paying you for all those other things and it's good money, then it's hard to turn it down. But I can imagine at some yeah, point that, there have got to be bruised egos. That billion dollars is just coming right back. Basically, when they right. pay for solid state right. storage or something like that. Well, there is it is weird, right? Because Samsung is a huge partner uh, when it comes to Apple. They developed a bunch of screens in the past. The uh, LCD displays that Apple uses in many of its products came from Samsung, and obviously solid state storage, which is a really big, big part of all of Apple's product lines now. Uh, a lot of that originated from Samsung as well. I mean, and to a certain extent, because it's such a big company, you do have this what's sometimes called like a you know like sort of a chinese wall where you have these two sides and they're not supposed to be really talking to each other but you know in overall they are the same company so it's hard to say exactly what the impact of that's going to be long term but i don't know i kind of feel like you know end of the day this is a company that wants you know samsung just like apple is a company that wants to make a profit they're not about to turn away a billion dollar you know multi-billion dollars investments from a company because they lost a lawsuit over on the other side of the building. Well, right, because they both need each other, unlike Apple and Google's relationship, where slowly Apple is replacing all the Google elements on the uh, on iOS because Apple's just very, very angry at Google. And I think that leads to the next point, which is really how much of this is about Android and not about the manufacturers. That's an interesting question because you would think that if if Apple was really concerned about Android, and of course – like I said earlier, the Steve Jobs, famous Steve Jobs quote um, in, in his biography basically says that Android is a stolen product. Um, and there's a lot of sort of behind the, you know, scenes discussions about whether or not, you know, we had this Eric Schmidt, Google's former CEO, served on Apple's board for a while while the iPhone came out. And around the time Android was coming out, Android, if you look at Android stuff that they were developing before the iPhone came out, and then after the iPhone came out, there's a pretty substantial shift taking place there as well. Um, and so there is a sort of open question of why not sue Google if you really think the problem is with them. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I think for one thing, I don't know if the impl- one of the implications might be, well, Android is a – it's distributed for free in some ways, which seems tricky. And so it's easier to target the people who are actually putting it on devices rather than the people who are making it. Um, because, you know, Google's not selling Android. Right. So, you know, I don't know if that makes them less of a target from a legal perspective. I think um, it's um, I think it's a rehearsal. 
Because, I, I mean, I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out why do you not go after Google when it's clear that, you know, Google is profiting, even if not d- directly by selling Android, it's profiting from Android, particularly now that it owns uh, Motorola. Um, well, uh, well, I think there's an interesting point there, right? Because if you if you manage to basically scare off most of their hardware partners, would they make anything off of it? Right. Because, That's, you know, they basically just have a software product that nobody can run on any hardware. But I, I, to, to my mind, it's the process seems something like, let's see how many... Uh, let's see how many precedents we can get in the legal system and let's try out our arguments with judges and jurors and see how those go. And then once we're fully prepared, that's when they'll go after the final golden goose. I think that's a good point. I think in, at least in terms of going after the hardware manufacturers, it's a cleaner suit because you can actually show where you've lost profit by you saying they sold X number of units. Those should have been ours because they were using our technology. Therefore we want this cut. Whereas you look at Google and Android, you say, well, they give it away for free. They're, they're getting ad revenue out of this. But how do you determine what that figure is? You say, well, right. Google's making it approximately well, we don't know because they won't tell us. Um, but I think you're right. I think eventually this really is about Android because it seems, at least from the jobs quote and, and some other things we've seen, that this is really about Apple is very, very unhappy with Google, particularly over Android, and wants to stop that somehow. And whether that's choking off the hardware so that Android becomes less valuable or, as you suggest, this is a rehearsal and then you go after it, um, it's an interesting point. Yeah, it's it's uh it's very strange because there was that period, I think it was about last summer, when all these suits started getting launched and it was like, you know, HTC, Motorola, and Samsung, all three of what you know, which provide the bulk of handsets that, that run Android. And so it definitely seems like well, obviously the target is Android, right? Because it didn't go out it did sue, you know, there was a back and forth with Nokia, but who have been making a lot of Windows phones, but they haven't really spent time targeting, you know, a bunch of other smaller companies making things, you know, they're really going after the ones who are delivering the most number of products. So is this an opportunity for Microsoft uh, where phone manufacturers now look at Android and say, man, this could be poison because some of these things that Apple went after really were Android based and not so much hardware based. So what about Microsoft? I think it's great for Microsoft. But there's, there's a problem there, which is that, you know, Android, they got to make the liability of using Android higher than the li- than the the cost to license Windows Phone, right? Because the OEMs actually have to pay for Windows Phone. They have to pay Microsoft money in order to use it. Um, and so, either if Microsoft really wants to get aggressive and jump on it, they need to start reducing that or eliminating that licensing cost, which is tricky. Then, because how do you make money off of it? Or they need to get into business making their own hardware, which they might be doing now that we've started to see them getting more of an interest in that with things like the Surface. Um, you know, or it's just Apple's got to, you know, it's got to get to the point where Android is just too risky an investment. Even if it costs free, you know, up front, you're worried about patent litigation and stuff like that down the road or licensing fees that you're going to have to pay to Apple or some other company that owns patents. So I agree with Lex that it's it's potentially an opportunity for Microsoft, but I think Microsoft can't just sit back and wait for, you know, the handset makers to come to it. It's actually got to aggressively move and take action if they want to exploit this. But if they did that, I really do think I agree. I think this is a, a good niche for them to exploit. I think that's right. And I would say, you know, that the, the if the ruling stands, not, you know, regardless of what the, the fine turns out to be, but if the ruling stands and they say that Samsung has violated and Apple is successful in getting injunctions against some of these t- 
Samsung phones. And Samsung is also faced with a situation where it cannot keep doing business as it had been. Uh, you know, I think Apple is quite content to be in a position where it's doing the, you know, where Samsung is required to do its own innovating because we saw for the d decades leading up to when the iPhone came out, how good Samsung was at that uh, on the smartphone and tablet side. Uh, where Microsoft, I think, really has shown that it has some chops in the innovating in the phone and even potentially in the tablet market. Uh, so I, I feel like Microsoft is sitting much prettier than it was before the verdict came in. Yeah, but I have to say that a business model of making money off of licensing fees for your OS seems prehistoric to me that Android clearly has the advantage in that, no, here it is, take it for free and we'll get our money from the other end, which is through advertising where Microsoft saying, Oh, well, look, you're our partners. We're going to charge you 40 bucks or whatever they choose to charge for licensing and operating system seems crazy when there's so many other ways to make money now that will actually encourage your partners instead of discourage them. Though at the same flip side, you know, you know, there's a certain amount of you get what you pay for. And so you might be able to you argue that, that there's a better product than the thing you're getting for free. That said, yeah, it's, it's tricky because they are very different licensing models. Honestly, if I were saying, you know, looking at Microsoft, I'd say, you know, these guys have to work more on building their own hardware. Um, but in some ways, that's very antithetical to the stuff that Microsoft does. They have they have built hardware in other markets. You get things like the Xbox in the in the gaming market, and they clearly are looking at tablets. Um, I don't think it would be crazy for them to look at uh, you know building something uh, of their own. Right now, it seems like they're major. They're mainly working with Nokia because um, they got a pretty strong relationship there. And so there's a question of well, is there really an advantage to having your uh, OS run on products from multiple vendors. I mean, Apple certainly has no problem making its own hardware and software. Could Microsoft make an exclusive deal with someone like Nokia and said, look, you know, we're going to put all our energy into Nokia and have them make really the best, you know, Windows phones. Because the downside to it is, sure, it's cheap to get Android, but you get this extremely diluted consumer experience, right, where every phone's a little bit different. Um, and there's not a lot of loyalty there. But it's uh, open source, Dan, and that's that's the best <laughs> thing magical ever. magical juju that's free and wonderful <laughs> and full of unicorns. Yes, that's it's right. open source. Um, but yeah, so you know, there's different there's different models here, and I think that Google's clearly chosen one model here, and it may have worked out for them in the short run in terms of jacking up their market share a lot. But I'm not sure it makes them a lot of money, which is tough. I'm sure that it does not. If that helps, right? And so, what, what's the point? <laughs> Like, you know, in the long run, yeah, you got a lot of phones out there, but if you're not making that much money on it, then your your only point is to squeeze the other people out of the market? I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it always seems to come back to advertising. Right. Well, Google. with Google, it's an advertising company. People exactly. That. It's yeah. an advertising company. Okay. Well, let's, let's turn away from this um, fetid world of uh, portable devices and turn instead to the fetid world of social networking and specifically Twitter. So um, Twitter's made a lot of third-party developers unhappy in the last couple of weeks. So Lex, what is going on there? Well, you know, it's, it's extra sad, Chris, because Twitter is like the one social network that you uh, didn't hate going into all of this. <laughs> exactly. But, was that, the, so, was that the, the royal you or Chris specifically? Th this was the Chris specific you. Okay. So uh, Twitter, a couple weeks back now, put out uh, an update to its developers, handing down some new stricter rules for how third-party developers can work with the Twitter API, the API being the means by which somebody who wants to make, say, a Twitter app uh, would access the Twitter servers and say, you know, give me all the tweets that Lex wants to see. 
uh, basically all of Chris and Dan's tweets. So uh, Twitter said that uh, starting from uh, August 16th on, developers who wanted to use the Twitter API would be limited to 100,000 users if they were making Twitter apps. So if you know Chris wanted to make Chris Breen app for Twitter, he could only have 100,000 users, at which point he would be, uh, he could no longer support further users for his app. The one little caveat they made was if you already have more than 100,000 users, whatever number of users you had back then on August 16th, two times that number is your limit. That's your user token cap. And let's be clear, it's not even... Uh, that number of users. If, uh, you know, I'm imagining that uh, both of you, like me, has mo- have more than one Twitter account in your Twitter app of choice. For example, I might have one for me, and I have also, I log into Macworld. So that means that I'm using two tokens for my Twitter app of choice, in this case, the TweetBot Alpha for the Mac. Uh, but so now all those t- Twitter developers are going to face these pretty immediate and distinct caps on how large they can grow, which limits... Uh, the most popular apps a little bit less since they have this, you know, broader limit based on where they already were. So they might be years away, but it still means that there is a finite shelf life unless Twitter changes its mind uh, for how long they can continue to sustain and welcome in new users. But this isn't a real problem because there are only like 2,500 people on Twitter, right? Uh, it turns out there's a lot more than that. You know, Twitter's Really? Got, yeah, millions and millions of users. Now, I would estimate that this is just my estimation, but I would estimate that about 75% of the people on Twitter are uh, robots, RSS feeds, and spammers. But the rest of us, uh, I think, still number in the, in the low millions. Now, none of the Twitter developer, none of the big-time Twitter developers, your Twitterifics, Tweetbots, and the like, are, are saying, uh, they're all saying that they have more than 100,000, that they were past that, that mark already, but they're not saying exactly how many they have. Uh, and, you know, honestly, this is what I think is the strictest limit, but there are other limits coming down, too. Twitter also said that it's uh, what it used to call its d- display guidelines, you know, how it suggested you should display tweets and the relevant information uh, surrounding those tweets, uh, are going to go now from being guidelines to requirements. Uh, and although it's not yet clear uh, if it will, that could spell doom for all kinds of Twitter apps and uh, apps that have built-in Twitter functionality. I'm thinking of uh, Flipboard, which displays tweets in a very graphical and unusual way and puts them alongside other kinds of content, uh, all of which violates those display requirements that Twitter has laid down. So what does Twitter hope to gain from this? Negative users. No, uh, (laughs) (laughs) world domination. Yeah, I mean, Twitter is not the company that Twitter was a couple years ago. And when Twitter started, it was eager to grow and it had no business model because internet startups are too cool for that sort of thing. And the goal was, let's just get as many people using and loving the service as we can. And quite frankly, it worked. You know, they made this very public open API. Twitter clients abounded like Twitterific, which I believe was the first uh, on the iPhone and the first on the Mac too, maybe. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, the, the service grew by having this very public API. And I think many people who were early Twitter adopters rarely, if ever, visited the Twitter website because you got everything done using Twitter apps on your iPhone or iPad or Mac. Uh, but today, Twitter, uh, understandably enough, I guess, wants to be a company that makes money. So the goal now is let's have an ad model. And Twitter's ad model is a little bit dopey in my book, but it's let's let's show promoted tweets and promoted accounts to follow. Um, and at this moment in time, the only uh, Twitter services that support such promoted tweets and promoted accounts to follow are Twitter's own apps. So the official Twitter app for iPhone or Android and the Twitter website. 
Uh, third-party clients don't see those promoted tweets, don't have access to them. And I guess Twitter was faced with a choice of let's expose those to your apps or let's basically make the world harder and harder for such apps to keep on going, and it has chosen door number two. Right. Okay. So what are we likely to lose if Twitter gets its way? Uh, Beyond sanity. You know, I think what's going to happen is that Twitter will – for some definitions of fine, I think that realistically Twitter will be fine. Twitter's got many, many, many users, and it keeps adding more users. And there are many people who are content to watch celebrities tweet about their daily goings-on and write back to those celebrities and have those celebrities ignore almost all the things they write to them. Uh, and I think those people will keep on doing that. And what what I think you'll eventually see happen is that folks who can't use their third-party clients that they want to use or folks who become unhappy because Twitter begins injecting too much sponsorship into their timelines uh, or folks who become unhappy because Twitter requires their favorite third-party apps to strip functionality or even to cease existing, uh, they may become disillusioned and go another way. But if you're looking to something like, you know, Upstart competitors like App.net, which is a currently very geeky and for-pay-only Twitter alternative, I think it'll take services like those a very long time to become truly competitive with Twitter, at least in terms of active user base. Um, because you know Twitter's got a multi-year and many million multi many multi-million user head start. Right. So I'm thinking specifically about features like, will I be able to embed images? So I'm out somewhere, I take a picture of something, and I want to embed that in a tweet. Can I do that? Can I embed a video into it? Can I put a map into it? How extensible is Twitter allow me to be? So I think that those specific examples you gave, most of them will continue to be allowed because Twitter already supports putting a, a photo into your tweet and already supports putting a location into a tweet. And it just has specific rules about how those images have to be displayed in Twitter clients going forward. Um, You know, they have to be displayed linked directly to the image. I think you have to show a preview of the image within the tweet. So apps that don't necessarily do that would have to change to comply with those rules to show it. But, you know, the the actions I'm more concerned about are things like, you know, if an app has... um, a translate button on tweets in case maybe you get people who write to you in four languages and mention your name and you have no idea what they're saying. Are they still going to be allowed to show a translate button since that's not one of the official actions of reply and retweet and favorite that Twitter says are the three actions you may associate with a given tweet. Twitter also says you can't, you know, um, mix content from other services alongside tweets, which is again why I said Flipboard could be in trouble. Um, And also would mean that in theory, nobody could ever make an app that would combine posts from various services like Twitter and app.net and other upstarts to uh, to have a single view into all of those things because Twitter doesn't want tweets alongside anything else. So I think you in general will be able to tweet as you've always tweeted, but it's more your experience of digesting tweets, reading tweets, and experiencing them that, that could be negatively impacted. Okay. You spoke a little bit about this before. Um, let's expand on it a little bit. And ultimately, who cares? Is it just us geeks who care about this and the vast majority of people are just going to go ahead and use Twitter and ignore those uh, promoted tweets because that's what we do? Well, my short answer is yes. And my long answer is that it's just going to be geeks who are affected and most people will just keep on doing it, keep on using Twitter and not even notice that anything's changed. But I think longer term, what happens is for users who actually want to stick with the service, 
um, or users who start and they get more into it and then they realize, hey, this direct messages thing is pretty cool or man, I want to manage multiple accounts more easily or people who just start to crave extra features because they've gotten increasingly into Twitter. Certainly, we're, you know, all the geeks who are of Twitter using Asia mentality now are already using it, but there could be a growing crop of up and coming geeks who haven't yet embraced the service. I think once you know, those people start, they're going to grow frustrated with Twitter's own offerings. Twitter does not make the best Twitter app doesn't make the best Twitter website. And uh, I think what that means is that, you know, people are, unless Twitter dramatically improves some of its own offerings, people are, I think, not going to be as interested in the services they were back when, you know, in the days of Tweety, which became the Twitter app and is now some weird, horrible kind of app experience in my book. But, you know, if, if they don't make those experiences better, I think you're going to find that people are craving something that Twitter doesn't want to allow them to get. And if Twitter's the one controlling the the only access to its service in a couple of years, I can imagine that people would would tire of trying to suffer through those experiences. I think there's an interesting point in that the you know I I know so many people who have come into Twitter and use it and just go with the Twitter provided app on their iPhone, for example, which always shocks me a little bit because as Lex said, it's not it's not very good, <laughs> um, but it's free. And it's also the thing that shows up when you search for Twitter and it's built into iOS, right? Like there's a whole bunch of just already exists. Like I said, like I said, if a head start, right, they're integrated with all these things, but they don't, Twitter doesn't really update it that much. And it really is fallen behind compared to a lot of the third party clients that are available. But it's always a question for me, you know, looking at these people who are not necessarily among like need to be on the cutting edge, right? If those people who are later adopters actually care um and it's possible that if it gets to a point where as you're saying the whole experience is just like oh my god it's ads and spam all day um then a lot of people i think you you know will step away from that but there are a lot of those who also won't if they just feel like well you know there's an ad every once in a while but i can live with that and they don't really know about third-party clients um and if all the early adopters are off leaving and you know some service like app.net and sort of sequestering themselves in there maybe they just don't won't ever know there's a better way <laughs> so it's a, it's a tricky it's a tricky situation because i think we do all tend to look at it very much from the the perspective of people who are tech savvy and early adopters and i'm not sure you know that that's the vast majority of twitter users as you say there's there's millions of them um and i think as a percentage while we're potentially an influential percentage, we're also a small percentage. So at this point, we have a couple of alternatives. One is app.net that you, you suggested. Um, there's always Facebook, which is unacceptable. Um, Google Plus. <laughs> Google Plus is going to be the big winner here. Oh, that's right. I forgot. About, I keep forgetting about <laughs> Google Plus. Um, yeah, I wish Google. I wrote about that on Ping, too. actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there's that one, too. So... In an age where we expect to get everything for free, is App.net a service that you have to pay for, a sustainable uh, service and one that's capable of growth? Or is this going to end up being a backroom for geeks? That's tricky because it really is hard to make that headway against something like Twitter or Facebook, which is which is free and where all your friends are, right? And that's the big that's the big denominator is where are all the people that I want to talk to? Are they on app.net or are they on Facebook or are they on Twitter? Um, they're not on Google Plus. We know that. Um, and so I think, you know, when it comes to that, if it's really app.net is really, uh, you know, makes its case and gets enough of a critical mass, then you might see it start to catch on. They haven't introduced, they haven't said exactly how much it will cost, for example. Um, 
And so I wonder about things like the minimum. It's right now it's $50, but this is sort of also the early adopter point. And they were trying to get funding. And that was a big part of that. I don't think even for a year that $50 is necessarily going to fly. Um, I think in some ways, if they made their, if they made an iOS app or had people make iOS apps and just said, look, just make your iOS apps, you know, paid or something and then charge for their API. Maybe that's another, uh, another, another option because people are very comfortable buying apps to a certain extent. They're not as comfortable saying, I'm going to go to this website, hand over my credit card so I can have access to a social network. Um, but yeah, that's that's a tough system because it's great in the, on the one hand where it's like, well, your money's going directly to the service. That means you shouldn't be seeing things like ads um, and there shouldn't be a lot of you know spam um, because you know the spammers aren't going to pay to register their accounts. Um, but at the same time, yeah, this is a situation where we we have become accustomed to getting things, especially social networking, for free. So I think it remains to be seen. My my take is that it's going to follow the same sort of path that we keep seeing more and more in you know the modern tech world, where App.net will never win on user count because you can't compete with free uh, if you're charging anything. Um, but I think that you know. Uh, there are many, many iOS games. I, I'm, like, for example, I'm sure that Words with Friends, the free ad-supported version, uh, has issued many, many, many more millions of downloads than the paid version. Paid versions, you know, five, six bucks or like that. It's it's not cheap for an app in this world, and you know, people who want to pay for it, ha- Zynga has to say, let's find a way to make sure that our ad dollars uh, can be matched because they're actually making more money. I would wager from the free version, but. You know, I don't think that Zynga cares because they're making money either way. With App.net, I think it's going to be the same sort of thing where Apple doesn't care that it doesn't have the biggest market share for smartphones, that Android phones outsell it by uh, some metrics, apparently, because Apple's making all the money. And, you know, right now, Twitter's ad model isn't just based on these sponsored tweets existing and these sponsored posts, uh, these sponsored accounts to follow uh, existing, but people have to actually feel like they're getting some value out of them on the advertiser side or they're not going to stick with it. And I don't know, I I have very rarely seen sponsored tweets because I don't use the Twitter apps or the Twitter website, but I have never seen one when I have encountered them that was relevant to me at all. I certainly never saw one that I thought, well, this is worth clicking on. I'm really glad somebody paid to get this in front of my face. Uh, so if I don't know how successful Twitter is going to be long term with that business model. Uh, I do think, though, that App.net can pretty much live as long as it wants with its current business model of if people want to use our servers, they're going to have to pay for it. As long as people keep paying, they keep making money and they can pay for their servers and stuff. I think they're in for the long haul. Right. Well, the question there is then whether or not you get enough users who are willing to, say, either leave Twitter or split their time between multiple social networks. Because, right. you know, right now I think you have a lot of fractured, you know, users who are saying, well, you know, I'm sort of like browsing, lurking on App.net, but I'm still mainly using Twitter. And unless sure. the, the App.net and community comes up with something that's compelling and different, um, then, you know, that's also that's that's a trick as well. Well, how do you compare the experience on Twitter versus App.net? Because I found on Twitter... Uh, as you both know, I tend to be kind of preachy and cynical and jokey. That's not that's not just you. I thought that was just you. That's who you are. No, it's just me. Yeah. Uh, but on app.net, I don't even bother because, I mean, it, you're, you're preaching to the choir, right? You, there are a lot of smart people that are on there. They go, yeah, yeah, we know that. We get it. That was unnecessary. Tell them, tell them you ate a sandwich. I think <laughs> right, and again, right, the whole the sandwich thing doesn't work either. So, but what's your experience with App.net? Do you do you post differently there than you do on Twitter? I can't figure out what to do. <laughs> That's, I'm sitting here actually. I'm staring at my screen, and I have a Twitter client and an App.net client running, 
and like frankly a lot of the same people except uh fewer since you can't really retweet stuff on app.net it's really just all people i know which is kind of cool but at the same time it's considerably lower traffic um than twitter where it's like twitter i might have you know uh 50 to 100 tweets in an hour whereas app.net it looks like you know in the last 12 i've had about eight <laughs> um and so it's definitely lower volume I, I don't know i mean lex i i see you you, you pop up in my app.net timeline a lot what the heck are you talking about it's tough. I mean, right now it's tough. It does not. I mean, it, I'm not somebody who hates Facebook with the passion that Chris does. Um, my my Facebook posts all come from Twitter, though. I use a, one of those Twitter services that takes all my tweets and puts them on Facebook so that the people who love me there can see all my bright witticisms from Twitter. Uh, that's, so there, you know, I share the same things. But since all the same people pretty much, I would say with 90% overlap, are following me on app.net. Uh, anybody who follows me on app.net, I'm saying, uh, probably already follows me on Twitter. It doesn't make sense to post the same things there. And I think that realistically, it doesn't make sense long-term to maintain a presence on two different microblogging services. There's only so much microblogging one can read and write. And right now, app.net is a bit of a chore, and I don't mind if I ignore it all day, and uh, it's fine. But for it to, I think that really, for it to ingratiate itself with me as a daily go-to social destination, it, it's not just that all my friends have to be there because many folks who I care about following on Twitter are on app.net, but everybody has to kind of use it. And I think it has a chance. I just think it takes time. You know, right now there's still a, a dearth of really good clients uh, for any platform. And I think once, you know, if, if the guys at TapBots make a, a tweet bot that does app.net on the Mac and on the iPhone and things like that, then I think you'll start to see some growth. Well, I think I think there's also the issue of it needs a hook, right? Like, because you're wandering around, you know, out in the street or something, like you think, oh man, here's this great thought I had. I'm going to share this on Twitter, or you see something, you're going to take a picture, like, but that so that space in your head is already occupied, right? Like, it, there's nothing where you walk around like, oh man, that would make a perfect post for app.net because it hasn't really defined itself yet, and it might, the, the, you know, and a lot of that I think is up to the community and what it ends up using it for. But until you get that moment where it's like, oh, I know exactly, you know, this should go on there because it fits with what goes on that service. Um, I think that's going to be that's going to be a tough sell, and I think in the short term vanity is going to be part of it as well because a lot of people who who use Twitter who do the kinds of things we do have a lot of followers. You get over to app.net and people aren't nearly as impressed by you because they're <laughs> they're either in the same business or they're just like yeah 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 we know all that stuff. Um, so I wonder how many people are going to give up on Twitter, you know, and and they're going to lose their thousands of followers and and gain you know 160 over on app.net. But they're better, Chris. They're 160 better following. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Um, yeah. So uh, early days, of course, and, and we'll see how that goes. But um, I am interested in the dynamic and, and how these two are going to differentiate themselves, because I, at this point, it seems a lot of people are going to app.net simply because they're really angry at Twitter. And, they, right. and so laying down that 50 bucks is just sort of a way of giving the finger to Twitter and say, there, I wouldn't give you a nickel, but I'm going to give these guys 50 bucks and I don't care what happens over here. Honestly, yeah. I'll say, based on what I've learned from recent tech news, the best people we could get to truly make a Twitter clone that looks and feels pretty much exactly like Twitter is Samsung. Perfect. I think they should go into that business, and um, and, and then we can follow. I, uh... I, I think App.net will fail for one simple reason, and, and that is that Lex currently has more followers than me there, and that's just, that just <laughs> cannot stand. Great. Okay, well um... – yeah, with that, I think we'll speaking just... Speaking of vanity. Yeah, speaking of vanity, I think we'll just close out right now. And uh, I would like to thank... Uh, okay, well, Dan, because you feel put upon. Dan Morin, I'll thank you first. Why, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. And Lex Friedman, thank you. And, and you have more 
followers than I do as well. That's right. Well, thank you. And thank you to all of my followers on app.net who made me what I am today. And that wraps up this episode of the Mackerel Podcast. I'd like to thank Dan Morin, Lex Friedman, and of course, you for joining me. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at mackerel.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-967-3622. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac OS, iOS, and technology news views and information at Macworld.com. Thanks very much. See you around.